Welcome to Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. In this format, we bring you timely and relevant conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Join us as we explore new ways of thinking about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to click on the subscribe button. Now, here's Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking, with Fred Larson, also a Managing Director of Investment Banking, who focuses on the transportation and logistics sector. Hello, and welcome to today's episode entitled Infrastructure, Supply Chains, and the Future of Everything, which is a big title. Uh, We're going to discuss the current state of U.S. infrastructure, our supply chains, and the critical issues, um, particularly in light of the coronavirus there, and finally and importantly, the potential opportunities and potential winners in all of this. You know, this is clearly important stuff. Infrastructure spending is already being hotly debated in the presidential campaigns. And in light of the coronavirus, um, we've all kind of been exposed to the vulnerabilities in our supply chains and the difficulty of procuring goods and getting goods on time. So this is all topical stuff. We have Fred Larson here today. Fred is a managing director. He heads Oppenheimer's Transportation and Logistics Investment Banking Practice. Um, So in that role, he focuses on financial advisory, capital raising for clients, and his clients are across the globe. Um, Fred has over 29 years of investment banking experience. He got his MBA from Columbia Business School with honors and his AB cum laude from Princeton in only three years. So Fred, welcome. Thank you, Jane. It's a delight to be here with you today. Great. So let's just jump in, shall we? Um, So U.S. infrastructure, when we say that, what we're talking about are roads, bridges, mass transit, ports, aviation, essentially the backbone of our country. Um, And most would agree that the current state of things is not too good. Um, The American Society of Civil Engineers gives the U.S. a D-plus grade, not good. They estimate that um, it'll cost something like $4.5 trillion to fix everything by 2025. Um, The Department of Transportation, they cite a backlog, again, of almost a trillion dollars of unmet capital needs just to fix our highways and bridges. So I guess I'll start and ask you if you agree with this kind of dismal assessment, and if you do, why are we here? Well, Jane, you know, I think the the numbers get thrown around. They're so huge, so it's sort of hard for people to get them in focus. Um, One thing I would say is the American Society of Civil Engineers has never met a bridge in the United States that it likes. I don't think they've ever given a great grade. And if you think about it, they do have the incentive because they're there to build things, uh, to try and make things better and build new bridges and new roads and tunnels and so forth. That being said, though, I think it's a fairly broad consensus across the industry, across experts from all different dimensions, that this country has seriously underinvested in infrastructure over the last many decades. Um, The last really enormous project we ever conducted was the creation of the inter- 
um, state highway network under the Eisenhower administration, and then oh, reigning beyond that for many decades. But it's been quite some time since we've invested any material amounts of money into our American infrastructure in this country. Which is weird because this affects all of us. I mean, I've lost a tire to a pothole. Um, commute times have grown. Um, there are safety issues. There are security issues. Um, I, I don't know why it's quite so hard to get things done in this space. I, I think one of the problems is that infrastructure itself is almost a definition of a public good. And the problem with public goods is that there is no one set of uh, as constituents which massively benefits from it. And therefore, public goods like infrastructure don't necessarily have any one constituency that's willing to push hard for to make it happen and to make infrastructure get built and maintained properly. You're absolutely right. It does affect all of us. And in fact, people who do study infrastructure and how it relates to the economy view it as absolutely essential that in fact, you know, if you don't build uh, infrastructure to support your economy and don't maintain it, then your economic growth potential is materially affected. Uh, McKinsey's Global Institute did a study in 2016 where they essentially estimated that every dollar that's invested in infrastructure globally has a rate of return of 20% per annum. Hmm. So that, in fact, it's quite uh, an excellent return vehicle if you think about the overall effects positive on the economy in the world. The problem is many of those returns are hidden or they're dispersed, and it's sort of hard for any one person or, or a people to identify them as actually having happened. Right. So, you know, here we are again, looking back to government's promises we had under Obama, almost a trillion dollars in the Recovery Act. You know, President Trump started by vowing to be the infrastructure president, and he's focused more on traditional roads and bridges and 5G, and we really haven't seen any progress there. Biden is campaigning on a $2 trillion plan, um, which I think focuses mostly on more clean energy projects, transportation, energy building sectors. You know, we've heard this before, and things don't seem to ever get done. And I think there are a lot who are skeptical about the government's ability to get these projects done. What would you think about that? Well, I'd say, I'd say a couple things. One is I think people are justifiably skeptical about these projects actually ever being put into place. Uh, sort of, so to start with, with actually, would we and would our governments actually do these? I think the short answer is based on recent experience, most uh, citizens and voters would be very and rightly skeptical to think that it would in fact happen, that these huge programs would be put in place. Again, going back to this McKinsey study, they've looked at the global average of infrastructure spending across the world and by countries and regions over many decades. And basically it says three and a half percent of GDP is spent on infrastructure on average across the world. But the problem is, the United States and Canada for the last many years have been spending only two and a half percent. So there's a 1% GDP gap in what we have been spending on infrastructure, much less forget about big projects, much less forget about maintaining what we've got. And globally, at least, McKinsey estimates that gap, gap over the next 15 years to be about $350 billion a year. So there's an enormous gap that's been widening. And in fact, after the global financial crisis, the United States began spending even less. 
So what you've seen is a massive sort of dereliction, if you will, of maintaining and growing infrastructure by the U.S. government. So I think, you know, voters are rightly skeptical that any of these plans are going to be put into full effect. Yeah, and then, you know, you and I both lived in New York during the, the subway, the Pleasant Subway Project. <laughs> um, that came in under budget and under time, right? <laughs> no, sadly, not at all. And and I think, you know, this is one of the uh, other reasons for um, voters to be skeptical, even if governments do follow through on infrastructure spending plans, um, which, you know, again, they haven't been so good at doing for quite recent, quite so many years. Uh, when they do, the results are often a real problem. They come in way over budget. They come in way behind time. And it creates massive disruption um, that creates all kinds of additional problems. When New York City was building the, um, uh, the uh, Second Avenue subway line in New York, uh, which added essentially about four stations to an existing subway line um, and uh, several miles of subway, but not very much, they ended up spending about $2.5 billion per mile to build this subway. Yikes. They came in at 10 years. This is at least seven times the global average of what it takes for underground subway and rail construction in the world. This includes, and a per perfect example, the city of Paris, also another very dense, very old city with lots of things underground to worry about, lots of construction issues, also arguably a far more socialist or social democratic country than the United States is with a lot more government regulation, a lot more power in, in labor unions and so forth, they did essentially the same project, almost identical dimensions in terms of extending one subway line in Paris, in the center of Paris, and they did it for $450 million per mile. So New York City spent over five and a half times what the French did in Paris using unionized labor. There are lots of reasons for this, and I think the New York City uh, example is sort of the worst example, if you will. The, there are political reasons within New York pretty much driven around the fact that the Metropolitan Transport Authority, the MTA, which is arguably in charge of the subways and rails in New York City, has actually very little political power. So while they are arguably in charge of these rail and subway projects, they actually have almost no power to negotiate to bring the various parties to bear um, and get things done on time and under budget. Okay, so we've established that we woefully underspent on our infrastructure, that politically it's, it's difficult to uh, change that to get anything done, and then when you do commence a, on a project that there are some structural challenges. So let's leave that thought and, and seg to our, our next topic, which are supply chains. And correct me if I'm not saying this properly, but basically supply chains are the complicated networks between suppliers, companies, and consumers. So the, the process of moving raw materials to companies who make things and then getting the product out to consumers. We've read a lot during the coronavirus about um, how our supply chains are not only vulnerable, but have failed us in some instances, certainly in the, the healthcare space. And to make it even more complicated, it sounds like companies often don't even realize 
their entire supply chain. So if you could give us a sense about the current state of supply chains and you know where we're at on that topic. Absolutely, absolutely. It's an interesting segue because uh, supply chains, you're absolutely right, they really are the networks of how people move things around the world, uh, generally goods um, that, that they're either going to consume or produce or sell or manufacture or whatever, all are connected by these uh, very, very large, long, complex global supply chains. If you think about it, supply chains sit on top of infrastructure. So, you know, we've been talking earlier about the basis for it and the fact that it's huge, it's very important to the economy, um, but in many ways, being a public good, there's almost no way to get it done without the leadership of government and political spending and political will. Supply chains are different. Supply chains take the infrastructure as it exists as, as a given, and the individual companies, actors, and consumers in the, in the global economy then try and figure out how to make their own goods move most efficiently, both by cost and time and expense and effort and so forth, through the existing infrastructure. So it's quite a bit, you know, it's a complicated sort of operations planning exercise. You look at a lot of information to make it happen. It's not quite so simple as simply moving your television set by truck from the store to your house, but rather all the things that went into making that television set where they were begun, the components, the different suppliers, all the transportation companies that have moved pieces of that television set to the various places it had to be so that it ends up finally sitting in your living room, uh, getting unboxed. And so the advantage of the supply chains, if you will, is that things can get done because you have individual actors, most of whom are mo motivated by profit, to actually try and make things happen and make things happen in an efficient and cost-effective way. So they do sit on top of this. I think when you, you mentioned the coronavirus um, and the effects on supply chain, what, what the pandemic has really um, shown up, uh, which is something that I think people were aware of, but perhaps not quite as aware as they should have been, is that in some respects, all these individual actors have done such a great job in optimizing global supply chains and making them highly efficient that what they didn't notice is that they made them highly fragile as well. So that these things are tuned within an inch of their lives, that you are manufacturing something in China and those components get shipped to India and those components get remanufactured and shipped to Germany and those components get remanufactured and shipped to the United States. And so there's an enormous complexity and an enormous spread of manufacturing and transportation around the world. Well, the problem is, as we've seen, that when you start shutting down planes and ports and airports and trucks and preventing people from crossing borders, all of a sudden that throws a huge monkey wrench into supply chains. And it's created a real challenge for most of us, and we've seen it ourselves, uh, generally as we've been at home trying to get toilet paper or tuna fish or whatever stocked into our house, and running into shortages in the in the grocery stores or in the delivery stores. Or in surgical masks. In surgical masks as well. And that's a good point. I think one of the things, it's a perfect example of this, which is a critical issue. So some people might say, okay, you know, so it was hard to get toilet paper for a few weeks. Ah, we live, no problem. But when you start thinking about the global pharmaceutical industry, you have the same situation, right? These pharmaceuticals, very few pharmaceuticals now are manufactured in the United States or in advanced countries the way they used to be 10, 20 years ago. Almost all manufacturing in the pharma industry has been outsourced, mostly to developing nations, 
Um, you know, a couple very obvious ones at the top, China and India are the biggest ones. Um, and because that's been done because even with the longer transportation costs and the time involved, their uh, labor costs and their regulatory costs are, are so much better than the United States or Western Europe that it just makes economic sense to do so. So the challenge is that um, you know, India right now produces 60% of all vaccines made in the world, 6-0, uh -huh. which is an enormous proportion. It's a $55 billion industry. They're also, the, India is the world's largest generic drug manufacturer. But hmm. it's more complicated even than that because India relies entirely on China for what they call active pharmaceutical ingredients, which are essentially the base chemicals, the reagents that are used to create the drugs that are then put into pills or vaccines or whatnot. And so when you started having these effects of the pandemic starting in China and then rolling around the world, all of a sudden, the solution to the pandemic, if you will, was stymied by the fact that the source of many of the chemicals and pharmaceuticals used to, that might be used to solve it was being shut down. So this shows the kind of fragility that we've built over time through all the right reasons, but we now have to deal with. And that's the question, you know, you, we've already heard calls that this should revert manufacturing and supply chains back to the U.S., but as you just articulated, that's not so easy to do. You know, there are some who say that this could present an opportunity in employment if we switch things back to the U.S., but there's a cost to that. How should we look at that? I think that's right. And I think that, you know, look, I think my perspective and I think the perspective of many people in the industry is that we're not going to reverse back to where we were in 1950 or 1960. It just makes no sense. You'd be giving up too much to do that. And I think if people thought carefully about how much better they are, uh, are uh, since uh, that time, they would actually realize it. I think what does need to happen, though, is that we need to take a much more critical eye and a much more perceptive eye about global supply chains. And in fact, this may require, interestingly enough, some more government oversight or government help, if you will. Because again, if you think about elements of supply chain as having knock-on effects for the entire global economy and for everybody, that begins to take the look of a common good like infrastructure in some ways. So maybe there needs to be some more coordination. The other way that actually can be done without government help and without political backing, which is already underway uh, and quite promising, is that many companies, manufacturers, shippers, retailers, are reevaluating their supply chains right now and trying to think, okay, how can we make these things more robust, less fragile, more flexible, more adaptable? And I think there are many ways to do that, probably not moving all your manufacturing back onshore, wherever you happen to be located, but maybe you move some of it back. Maybe you move intermediate parts of your supply chain or your manufacturing chain to other domiciles around the world. You don't have all your raw products coming from India or from China. You have them scattered about in various locations so that if you think about it, your entire supply of materials or goods in your supply chain is not vulnerable to single points of failure. Now, the one reason that you don't want to pull everything back into the U.S. or Western Europe to do it all yourself is that, guess what? That exposes you to a single port of failure in your own country or your own other thing. So right. again, the idea is really going from this highly optimized supply chain that maybe has developed quite a bit too many single points of failure to a more distributed one 
that can take loads, that can have areas of the world shut down or slow down or have problems, whether it's a pandemic or a tsunami or earthquakes or volcanic eruptions, all these things which have created major supply chain disruptions in the last couple of decades, and we've seen them, and they happen around the world. The pandemic is a little unique in that it's mostly global right now, and so it's affecting most of the world at the same time, but most actually supply chain challenges don't do that. So we know the challenges. I think you've done a lovely job of articulating all of the, the problems and the challenges. So where can we find opportunities in all of this? You know, you are not a stock picker. Uh, you're an investment banker who advises companies. However, you've been in this space for a long, long time, and we're going to have investors who are listening to this. Where do you think there are the opportunities and where are the growth uh, sectors and you know potential disruptors that might benefit from all of this. Well, I think Jane, the 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 most interesting thing to me, the development in my industry over the last seven to ten years has been the amazing infusion in of technology into transportation logistics. When I joined, uh, started banking the business way back in the in the dark ages. Um, you know, I was raising uh, IPOs and bond deals for trucking companies, airplane companies who move stuff around and they were very successful companies and it worked great and so forth and so on. But almost all of the innovation and excitement and growth in transportation logistics now is coming from companies who either develop or use or apply or all three technology to how they do stuff for their clients. And if you think about it, this can take the place of the coordination problem we were talking before, right? If you are thinking about looking at your supply chain, making sure it's distributed properly, man monitoring it on a real-time basis, dealing with emergencies, dealing with shutdowns, rerouting things as need be, the only possible way you can do that is by having highly sophisticated technology that monitors this in real time and gives you the material that you can make decisions. There are lots of companies that are actually developing these things. And many of them, interestingly enough, in my space in, in logistics and transportation are not the traditional software and hardware technology companies. They're actually the logistics companies themselves are developing their own technology because they know exactly what they need and how it affects their clients. And the costs of making the technology and the costs of employing some of the hardware you need to collect data have plunged so dramatically over the last many years. So I think a real area of opportunity and one where I've been spending a lot of my time in banking with clients, both in mergers and acquisitions and in capital raising, has been how do you apply technology to logistics? And how do you do that in a way that's sophisticated, cost-effective, and ultimately profitable for your companies? Do you see the potential here for systemic change coming out of the coronavirus? One day we will indeed come out of this. And being an optimist, I like to think that uh, maybe these are all opportunities for some good change. Um, in your industry, do you think that that indeed might be I the case I think it really here? is. And I get, I get excited about this. I've been doing this for a long time. And yet, the industry has continued to change and advance and develop. You're right, there are serious challenges, but people address them with very innovative ways. So I get excited about things like 
um, electric vehicles. I get excited about things like autonomous vehicles. I get excited about um, you know nanotechnology and about Internet of Things, where you can install monitoring devices at very small levels, very inexpensively, in your goods and your products as they move around the world to give you information. I get excited about the kind of processing power that can be put to work by companies who are employing relatively small numbers of pro programmers now and putting very, very sophisticated software systems out into the cloud for people to use. All of these things are happening in my business as they are in many other businesses, um, in many other uh, industries in the economy. But it's really exciting to see how it's transforming transportation logistics. I think there's a big future for the, for the industry. I remember years ago in the first dot-com boom, uh, way back in the day, 1999, 2000, one of the clients that I paid attention to at the time was Norfolk Southern Corporation, a big industrial freight railroad in the United States. They ran a magazine ad, a print ad, remember those? But they ran a magazine ad which said, you can't move 60,000 pounds of steel over the internet. And this is true of transportation logistics. There's always going to be stuff heavy stuff, bulky stuff that needs to be moved from where it's made to where it's consumed. So transportation logistics will always exist. The trick is, how do you make it better? How do you make it quicker? How do you make it more efficient, more reliable, and more profitable? And lots of companies are working to do that. Well, I think that's a lovely place to end our conversation with a, a bit of um, optimistic forward thinking. Um, these are topics that we're going to continue to be forced to reckon with and discuss, particularly as the um, political campaigns heat up. So this might not be our last conversation between you and me, Fred, um, but I really appreciate your, your time and your insights today. This was very, very helpful. Well, thank you for having me, Jane. I've been delighted to be on and uh, would love to continue the dialogue. Okay, and this is Jane Ross signing off until our next episode of Let's Talk Future. 